Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hello, diggers. Welcome to episode 13 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Christian Swain here, and I am at the Waldo Point Marina in Sausalito, California. There is a rock and roll history in this town, a beautiful houseboat community fronting Richardson's Bay, just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. More about that in just a minute. First, some backstory. Sausalito has a wonderful, quirky history going back about 200 years, but we will start with the Beat Era in the early 1950s. Now, during World War II, the Sausalito waterfront had been a shipyard that built merchant craft in support of the war effort. At the end of the war, the shipyard shut down, but the big industrial buildings left behind made terrific artist lofts, a combination living and working space, and the rent was dirt cheap. Throughout the 50s, Sausalito's low cost of living and bohemian freewheeling atmosphere attracted artists, writers, musicians, or folks who just like being on the water and off the beaten path. The now famous Sausalito houseboat community started here during those years. By the mid-60s, Sausalito was becoming gentrified, a nice little euphemism for really expensive. But it retained plenty of funky local flavor. Today, about 400 houseboats line the docks here. In 1967, Bill Graham bought one, uh, anchored here at the Waldo Point Marina. By then, Bill was doing very well indeed as a concert promoter and producer. Yeah, he could afford it. A quick little aside, uh, we've got a Deeper Digs in Rock episode coming up that will profile Bill Graham in depth. Bill's a big kid on the block here in the Bay Area. Actually, Bill Graham's a big kid on just about any block in the rock and roll world. All right, back to Sausalito, 1967. After witnessing Otis Redding's thrilling breakout performance at Monterey Pop, Bill offered up his houseboat to Otis for a mini vacation. A few days of chilling out West Coast style was a welcome respite from the rigors of the road. For five-plus years, Otis had been tearing it up with the touring, but so far he had enjoyed only modest chart success. His song, Respect, hit number one in 67, but that was Aretha Franklin's version. We can be certain Otis gladly cashed the royalty checks, but just the same. He was ambitious, a real worker, and the lack of a hit record bothered him. He liked that stuff he'd been hearing lately from the Beatles, from Bob Dylan, unconventional song structures, storytelling. He wanted to try some of that, put his own stamp on it. A little quiet time to write. That's what he needed. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in Then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've had nothing to live for, and look like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You wanted the best and you got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. 
music. Culture. Technology. And roll. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, Christian Swain once again, and I'm back home now at the illustrious world headquarters of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Welcome to episode Lucky 13. Some housekeeping, and we'll get right into one of our favorite topics, American soul music in the 1960s. This episode will dovetail quite a bit with episode six, Soul Sisters, so if it's been a while, go listen to that one too. Website gang, we've got a website. Everything is there, all the podcasts, show notes, social media, donate links, all of it. Please stop by rockandrollarchaeology.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Keep checking in on social media. Go to PayPal or Patreon and donate a dollar a month. Just one dollar to keep up the rockin'. Okay, that takes care of that. Thanks, and let's get right to it. Right now, this is episode 13, Hard to Handle. East McLemore Avenue on the south side of Memphis, Tennessee. There's a new building here these days. It's the home of the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. Prior to 1960, this address was the Capitol Theater. The Capitol went under that year and left the building vacant. It was a seedy, blighted neighborhood. Uh, the rent was 100 bucks a month. Two siblings, Jim Stewart and Estelle Stewart Axton, relocated satellite records right here. They both held day jobs, and every night and on the weekends, they ripped out seats, laid down carpet, and put up dividers. Estelle sewed some drapes at home, and they hung them from the ceiling as sound baffles. She opened a record store in the lobby, and the store did well. Uh, those first few years, it was the record store, not the record company, which kept things going financially. The record store also provided a kind of on-the-spot barometer of tastes. The product the studio was creating, wrote Peter Grolnick in Sweet Soul Music. Estelle hired a local high school kid named Steve Cropper to mine the store and sweep the floors. Satellite, before long, would become Stax Records. In this show, we'll talk about the Stax Record Company specifically, but the name Stax will also serve as a shorthand for Southern soul music in general. There were numerous independent studios and small labels in the Mississippi Delta country. Royal Records, also in Memphis, Fame Studios, and Muscle Shoals Sound were just a short drive south in northern Alabama. There were a bunch of them. Those are just some of the bigger names. Sometimes these studios put out their own product, other times, they created product that was picked up and distributed by the bigger national outfits. These Delta music makers formed the third side of the Soul Triangle. We talked about the other two sides, Atlantic and Motown, in Episode 6. Atlantic artists tended to be polished, mature, and eclectic. <laughs> Very New York City. Atlantic releases were also some of the best engineered recordings in the world thanks to their resident whiz kid behind the mixing console, Tom Dowd. 
Motown, as we've seen, was the hit factory. The product was a lot of peppy hit tunes, and they sold by the millions. As a young man, Barry Gordy worked the assembly lines of Detroit, and he applied, ruthlessly at times, that factory floor paradigm of industrial management to the business of music. Delta Soul wasn't polished or peppy. It was tough and lean. The groove pushes and pulls, the horns punch, and the singers growl. Rough around the edges, maybe, but authentic and urgent. Listen carefully and you'll hear country influences. A lot of the same studio players who cut soul tracks in Memphis and Muscle Shoals also cut country tracks in Nashville. The best of Southern Soul came from Stax Records. They were a mom-and-pop operation going up against big competitors. But Stax had their own special Memphis magic. It came from the house band, the amazing Booker T and the MGs. son of a high school science teacher, just 16 years of age, got a chance to cut class at school and cut a track at Stax. Booker takes up the story himself from his forward to Robert Gordon's 2013 book, Respect Yourself, Stax Records, and the Soul Explosion. through the door, baritone sax in tow, not quite believing I had stepped into the studio. Before I knew it, I had my horn out, and I was standing in the middle of a room of musicians. They played a short excerpt of the song and asked if I could think of an intro. From out of the bell of my horn came the opening notes of Cause I Love You, and the rest of the band picked up the opening bars. The tape was rolling, and my career as a session musician had begun in lieu of a morning algebra class at nearby Booker T. Washington High School. That song, Cause I Love You, put Stax on the map, and the place became my home away from home. Cause I Love You made only a modest dent in the charts, but it was the first successful profitable track cut at the new facilities on McLemore Avenue. Jim Stewart quit his day job at the bank to manage the record company full-time. Four years earlier, Estelle Axton mortgaged the family home to buy the recording equipment. The proceeds from Cause I Love You allowed Estelle to pay off that note. Cause I Love You also <laughs> grabbed the ear of Jerry Wexler at Atlantic, who decided to take a closer look at this outfit in Memphis. Wex set up a national distribution deal with Jim and Estelle and brought Tom Dowd down to Memphis. Tom brought in a four-track tape machine, revamped and upgraded the electronics in the control room, and taught modern recording techniques to Jim Stewart and his staff. Most important to our story, that recording session marks the moment when a couple of teenage musical prodigies, keyboardist Booker T. Jones and guitarist Steve Cropper, remember the kid Estelle hired to staff the record store up front? Anyhow, at the Cause I Love You session, Crop and Booker went from acquaintances to lifelong friends and musical collaborators. Oh, nice. 
That's the second hit, Last Night by the Marquise, a sax-driven instrumental that hit number three on the pop charts in 1961. It was the first million seller for Satellite Records, and it features Booker T on the keys and Crop on the guitar. When Last Night made it out to California that summer, Jim and Estelle got a cease-and-desist letter from an L.A. company that also went by the name of Satellite Records. They took the first two letters of their respective last names, Stuart and Axton, and in 1961, they filed the paperwork and renamed the company Stax Records. Summer of 1962, Booker graduated from high school. He was on his way to the superb music program at Indiana University. Between sessions and gigs, Booker continued his studies at IU. In 1967, he was awarded a bachelor's degree in music theory and composition. IU's music program is rigorous, very traditional, and world-renowned. Symphony orchestras and opera companies everywhere are stuffed with Indiana grads. It's kind of a fun fact that Booker T. Jones is the only IU music graduate inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Marquis had a shifting lineup, but there were four constants. Booker T. on keys and Crop on the guitar, Al Jackson Jr. on drums, and Louis Steinberg on bass. Two black guys and two white guys. Steve Cropper's old high school buddy, Donald Dunn, the Duck, took over on bass in early 1965. Starting in 62, they began recording and releasing instrumentals under the name Booker T and the MGs. That's the year Green Onions came out. (laughs) Sorry, gang. We'd play it again right here, but we've already used it twice in earlier episodes. Of course we did. You can't talk about American popular music in the early 60s and not play Green Onions. But hey, not to worry. We've got plenty more great stacks cuts we can play. And we will. Matter of fact, let's do it right now. Here's the Marquis, along with the Memphis Horns. You know this one. Hit it, fellas. Pickett recorded that at Stax. Steve Cropper helped him write and arrange it. Not long after that, Wilson went down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and cut tracks with the Swampers. We met them back in episode 6. His smash album on Atlantic, The Wicked Pickett, released in early 66, was one half Memphis, one half Muscle Shoals. The Memphis Horns, angered by Wayne Jackson and Floyd Newman, are heard from here. They were integral to the sound, especially for Otis Redding, as we shall soon see. Throughout the 60s and into the early 70s, the Marquis and the Memphis Horns played together on almost every Stax hit. The Marquis brought the churn and burn and funk underneath, while up on top, the Memphis Horns gave the songs punch and some radio-friendly gloss. Here's another one. Uh, This time, it's Otis taking the mic. But you got to go home with me. I forgot some good old love, and then I got some in store. When I get through throwing it on you, you got to come back for more. Boys and things will come by the dozen, but that ain't nothing but drugs to loving. Pretty little thing, let me light your count, cause mama, I'm sure hard to hell and I, yes, around. Gospel trained singers and young musicians steeped in country and rhythm and blues were creating a new kind of personal expression in Memphis and nearby Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Bare boned and uncompromising, this was the flowering of soul music. That's from a 1993 New York Times review of Jerry Wexler's autobiography, written by Leo Sachs. 
So, uh, bring it back up here for just a second. Pretty little thing, let me like to count, cause mama, I'm sure hard to hell and I, yes, around. We hear a call and response interplay, but it's not between Otis and the backup singers. <laughs> there are no backup singers. The call and response occurs between Otis and the horn section. That was kind of a Stax trademark. It's really cool. We love it. Here's another example, but you gotta hold on. It's coming. Starting all right in the chorus. something right here. Atlantic had the status, and Motown had the sales, but Stax and the Southern Soul sound had the lasting influence. So we'll skip ahead 25 years and play an all-time favorite of ours. It's not by a Stax artist, but it will hammer home the point. And I do mean hammer it home. So, it's 1986, an established British artist... A huge fan of the stack sound growing up wants to pay tribute to his heroes. So that was part of the excitement of that session, was hearing all these Otis stories, because I managed to see Otis Redding, I think in 64, in Brixton in London, in the Ram Jam Club, which was a basement, and there were probably three white faces in the whole place. And it, it was still, to this day, my favorite ever gig. <laughs> that, of course, is Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, MPG talking about his early influences in a 2012 appearance on National Public Radio's all songs considered. One more comment about the lasting influence on Memphis soul. I get it custom. You a customer. You ain't custom to going through customs. You ain't been nowhere. Huh? And all the ladies in the house got them selling out. I'm done. I hit you up, man. Yeah. Nah. Welcome to Havana. Smoking Cubanos with Castro and Cabanas. Via Mexico. Cubano, Dominicano, all the plugs that I know. Driving Benzes with no benefits. Not bad, huh? For some immigrants. Build your fences. You might know Jay-Z and Kanye West had a big hit and won a Grammy back in 2011 for their song, Otis. We like it all right, but we don't really love it. It is a great idea, and it's nice to see a couple of today's stars giving props to Otis Redding. If you want to hear it done really well, there's a really fun feel-good documentary from 2014 called Take Me to the River, directed by Martin Shore. It's about the making of an album that also blends Memphis soul from the 60s with hip-hop artists from today, and it kills. We recommend it. There's a link in the show notes. Here's one of our favorite bits from the movie. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone only darkness when she's away, Lord. Yes! <laughs> Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. She's always gone too long. Anytime she goes away. You do it, you got it. Chill. Last night I was thinking about you. Hit your phone, let you know I ain't forgot about you. I remember when I couldn't live without you. Now I can't live with you. No around you. Yeah, you used to be my sunshine. I know, I know, I know, just like the push. So, back to Peter Gabriel's childhood hero, Otis Ray Redding Jr., was born near Macon, Georgia, in 1941. 
Otis quit school at 15 to play with another Macon native, Little Richard. From there, Otis scratched out a living on the Chitlin circuit, where he often crossed paths with yet another Georgian, James Brown. In 1961, after a year-long excursion to L.A., Otis was back in Georgia, working with a Macon outfit called Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. Jim Stewart invited the Pine Toppers up to Memphis to cut tracks at Stacks. These arms are the mine. was a backup singer slash roadie slash driver for the Pine Toppers. He had a featured spot in the show where he sang one of his own tunes, These Arms of Mine. That song and Otis Redding's easygoing charm and charisma got people's attention. In 1962, Jim Stewart signed Otis to a solo deal at Stax and teamed him up with Steve Cropper as a songwriting partner. records were solid, but unspectacular sellers. Just the same, Otis did well on the road. Real well. By the time we get to 1966, he's a millionaire, bringing in $25,000 a week or more when he was on the road, which was just about all the time. That was big money in 1966. Hell, that's good money even today. Otis dressed sharp, and he loved his Cadillacs. But off the road, he lived quietly. He spent time with his wife, Zelma, played with his kids, and puttered around the big old ranch, a working 300-acre cattle ranch, a half-hour drive north of Macon. He was a great community guy, too. Local charities all knew Otis Redding was a soft touch. To this day, the Otis Redding Foundation funds and organizes music education programs for kids. We just love that. Music education for young people is a favorite topic of ours as well. If you are interested in helping, we've linked to some good outfits in the show notes. You know what, Otis? What? You're country. That's all right. You're straight from the Georgia woods. That's good. You know what? You wear overalls, big old broke iron shoes, and you need a haircut, tramp. He liked to poke fun at himself in his aw shucks, hayseed ways. But Otis was very shrewd indeed about his business affairs, and he had a very capable, loyal manager in Phil Walden, a fellow Maconite who'd been with him from the very beginning. He had put plenty of singles into the top 40, but not once had he cracked the top 10. And when Aretha Franklin took his song Respect and turned it into a worldwide smash, well, that lit a fire under Otis Redding. He put Phil Walden and the folks at Stax on a mission. Get me that crossover shot. Get me in front of some new audiences and let me show these kids what Otis Redding can do. It started in London, went on to the Whiskey A Go-Go in Hollywood, on up to the Fillmore West in San Francisco, and finally to the Monterey Pop Festival in the early summer of 1967. This is the love guy, right? We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Let me hear you say yeah now. Yeah. All right. I've been loving you too long to stop now. 
rich white kids on their summer break. He had to convince people who were not necessarily in the sole audience, the sole market, that he was a great entertainer. He played the Fillmore for Bill Graham, and Bill Graham called him the biggest talent he ever saw. This is Bill Graham saying this, who saw everybody. And you had people like Jerry Garcia and Joplin and Grace Slick begging Bill Graham to let them open for Otis. So he was conquering all these markets. It was astonishing what he was doing without a crossover hit. He had an underground kind of appeal that built on itself, grew like an avalanche. That's Mark Rabowski, author of Dreams to Remember, interviewed by Karen Grigsby Bates on NPR's All Things Considered, broadcast in 2015. We'll come back to Otis and to Stax. Let's go wide right now. Talk about some big picture stuff. starry-eyed romantics, fanboys, and fangirls. We also like to believe we are thoughtful people. And it has occurred to us, you can't really separate what's going on in art from what's going on in society at the time, or vice versa. So, early on we talked, perhaps a bit too much, about the mission, the overall purpose. One more time, we're using rock and roll as a way to talk about what's going on in America, the UK, and around the world in the latter half of the 20th century. An ambitious undertaking, and we're giving it our best effort. So, all of this is to say, we feel like we need to do a little summing up right here, provide some context. Uh, So here goes. During the 1960s, or more accurately, starting around 1963, a cultural revolution shook America's social structure to its very foundations. Long-held social and political norms were questioned, and a counterculture began to emerge. In many ways, this emerging counterculture was nothing new. We brought that up, too. For a long time, it had been churning away beneath the surface. But starting in 63, things really picked up speed. And while all this disruption and change was thrilling to some, it was deeply unsettling to others. some of these things already, and in some detail. Let's recap some of these changes. The African-American struggle for equality, women's liberation, birth control, reproductive freedom, and the sexual revolution, environmentalism, protests against militarism, first nuclear weapons, then later Vietnam and the draft, a push for freedom of self-expression that included fashion and personal appearance, using mind-altering drugs as a path to spiritual enlightenment or just for crazy hardcore fun. The beginnings of the movement for LGBT equality, bold and increasingly unfiltered offerings in theater, cinema, and television, and of course, our topic, this new music that speaks to and about all of these things and more. Some of these streams, like the civil rights movement, were campaigns, deliberate, planned out, and strategic. Others were more diffuse and spontaneous, and all of these streams are still with us. Uh, Taken together, they add up to a tidal wave of change. Wherever you may stand, however you may feel about it, this wave of change forever altered how Americans see and hear themselves. 
and how we see and hear each other. So, zeroing in a little bit. In episode six, we talked about the intertwined symbiotic relationship between the music of black America and the civil rights movement during the 1960s. We also talked about collaboration and cooperation between black and white musicians and black and white audiences. When we talk about this interplay of race and music and the crossovers that occurred in both directions, it's more than a discussion about style or genre. It's essential to the story. It is the story. The more we learn about it, the more we have to conclude. Our old friend Sam Phillips at Sun Records in Memphis was dead right in 1956. Sam said, quote, If I could find me a white singer with that Negro sound, unquote, if he could just do that, why, old Sam could make a billion dollars. Okay, he didn't make a billion, but Sam did just fine and he made Elvis Presley the first rock superstar. And then, up in Chicago, Leonard Chess proved that a black hillbilly, Chuck Berry, could cross over from the other direction. Speed up the blues, put in some sly country storytelling, and slam home the backbeat. In the late 50s, Elvis and Chuck crossed over, and it changed the whole damn world. We think so. But then again... We are just starry-eyed fanboys and fangirls. So, just half a decade after Elvis and Chuck in the mid-60s, there is still a lot of very fertile crossover. These new blends in music reflect, and reflect back on, what's going on in the larger society. This was especially true with this gigantic new generation of young people, the baby boomers who were less burdened by racial prejudice than their parents were. Things were changing. People were coming together. And songs like Dancing in the Streets by Martha Rees and the Vandellas provided a happy and hopeful soundtrack. Expressions of hope and happiness, fun and togetherness, it pleases us to talk about these things. Um, but it's not the whole story. There are other forces at play. People can be brought together, and people can be torn apart. Come round by my side, and I'll sing you a song. I'll sing it so softly, it'll do no one wrong. On Birmingham Sunday, the blood ran like wine, and the choir kept singing of freedom. Ten twenty one AM Sunday morning, September fifteenth, nineteen sixty three. Carolyn Mall McKinstry, fourteen years of age, bolted up the stairs from the basement of the sixteenth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Down in the basement, four of her friends were chatting excitedly and changing into their choir robes. They were fourteen year olds Eddie May Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, and eleven year old Denise McNair. The title of the sermon that morning, The Love That Forgives. She left her four young friends behind in the basement because it was youth day at the church and young Carolyn was the Sunday school secretary. She took her duties seriously. The phone was ringing and it was her job to answer it. She charged into the Sunday school office, grabbed the handset and greeted the caller. An unidentified male voice spoke two words before hanging up. Three minutes. Less than one minute after the call ended at 10.22 a.m. A thunderous explosion. At least 14 sticks of dynamite shook the downtown district of Birmingham. The bomb had been placed beneath the church steps, only a few feet away from the four girls. Their bodies were hurled like rag dolls, according to one eyewitness, and were discovered piled on top of each other out near the street. 
The blast injured 22 more people, including Addie Mae's little sister, 10-year-old Sarah Collins, who was permanently blinded in one eye. It destroyed vehicles in the street and shattered windows as far as 10 blocks away. It shattered every window but one at the 16th Street Baptist Church. The one surviving window was a stained-glass depiction of Christ leading a group of children. This is Taylor Branch from his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Parting the Waters. Martin Luther King spoke over three of the four coffins from the Birmingham church bombing. At times, life is hard, he said, as hard as crucible steel. 8,000 people braved the vigilantes and jeep patrols to attend the giant funeral. No elected officials attended. Among the mourners were 800 Birmingham pastors of both races, making them many times over the largest interracial gathering of clergy in the city's history. They assembled on Wednesday, September the 18th, exactly three weeks after the march on Washington. The two events etched a conflict of mythological clarity, blinding purity against a monstrous evil. And the choirs kept singing of freedom. We'd like to tell you this act of monstrous evil and the international shock and revulsion it inspired galvanized America to move quickly and make real progress on civil rights. There was progress, yes, and that progress should be celebrated. But it came slowly and at a terrible price. The hatred and the murder continued. Decades went by before any of the four men who conspired to murder these four little girls, men who were known to both local and federal law enforcement. It was decades before any of them served a single day in prison. Justice delayed is justice denied, in the words of Dr. King. And this delay, this denial of justice for these four little girls, prompted another response to Birmingham Sunday. A new militant strain of African-American resistance started to make itself more widely heard and more widely felt. Since self-preservation is the first law of nature, we assert the Afro-Americans' right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And, as Americans, we will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. The history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. Much of white America thought of Malcolm X as a demagogue, a dangerous man. But he was just speaking plainly about what confronted his people at the time. While Martin Luther King tried to awaken the conscience of white America, and while white politicians dithered and delayed, black children were being ripped apart by explosions. Malcolm argued that what was needed was not another march or another civil rights organization or another piece of legislation. African Americans didn't need any more do-gooder white liberal allies. They certainly didn't need another somber, inspirational eulogy spoken over the coffin of yet another dead child. What African Americans really needed, in Malcolm's estimation, was a means of protecting themselves. If it's in self-defense, Malcolm X would often say, I don't even call it violence. I call it intelligence. So there was another response to Birmingham Sunday, to all of the unpunished atrocities committed by Southern white supremacists in those years. The Black Power Movement began, and it started to grow quickly in size and influence. By the time we get to 1967, the Black Panther Party has formed in Oakland, California, and Panther chapters are organizing in cities across America. Uh, 
James Brown, that brilliant strutting egomaniac, had his own ideas about building black power. And Otis Redding, personable and easygoing, shared many of the same ideas. Simply put, it's not about the black or the white, it's about the green. To these two men, building black power meant building black-owned businesses and economic self-sufficiency for black communities. The music business did provide some precedent, some examples. Barry Gordy built a very successful black-owned business at Motown. In episode 6, we called Motown a great American success story. It was exactly that. Back in 62, when Ray Charles left Atlantic for a big label, ABC Records, he negotiated an incredible deal that included ownership of his master recordings. In 63, James Brown self-financed the production of his Live at the Apollo album and basically forced King Records to release and distribute it. These were outliers, notable exceptions. For the most part, black musicians worked for white record company owners. Now, white record company execs like Jerry Wexler Atlantic or Jim Stewart and Estelle Stewart Axton at Stax, these were good-hearted, fair-minded people. We are not suggesting otherwise. But even as this tidal wave of cultural and political change was sweeping the land, the basic power dynamic in the recording industry was the same as it ever was. A white owner, a black employee. Something had to give. Black power advocates demanded greater opportunity for African Americans in the record industry and called for more black ownership of soul and other black identified genres. This stance corresponded to a larger black capitalist ideology that called on African Americans to take control of the resources and markets that affected their communities. That's Charles L. Hughes, an academic and the author of Country Soul, Making Race and Making Music in the American South, published in 2015. We'll give Professor Hughes the last word on the subject and get back to the story. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. I've got dreams, dreams to remember. Honey, I saw you there last night Another man's arms holding you tight Nobody knows what I feel inside All I know, I walked away and cried I've got dreams Summer of 1967, Otis Redding Enterprises, Incorporated, acquired a private plane. Otis was a gentleman, by all accounts, a good husband and father, a decent and personable guy. His first love was singing and performing, but he was also fiercely determined to be his own man, self-contained and in full control of all his business affairs. So he bought an eight-passenger Beechcraft twin. In fact, he bought it from James Brown. Along with a new plane in late 1967, Otis acquired a new band, the Barkays, or as everyone called them, the Kids. Otis still worked with Booker T and Crop and the rest of them in the studio, but after the breakout at Monterey, he hired these young hotshots, the Kids, to be his full-time exclusive touring band. In early December, Otis cut Dock of the Bay at Stacks. At first, nobody knew what to make of it. Jim Stewart didn't like it and didn't want to release it. Then he argued for releasing it as a B-side. Finally, Otis warmed down, and Jim Stewart agreed to release Dock of the Bay as the lead single from the new Otis Redding album. Wax didn't care for it either. He told Steve Cropper to remix it, make the vocal track more prominent. Cropper said sure, 
waited a few days, then he sent along another copy of the exact same mix. Now, that's more like it, said Jerry Wexler. Atlantic agreed to distribute the new single. As 1967 came to a close, Otis was riding high. His friends, his family, his manager, Phil Walden, had never seen him so energized. He was coming off throat surgery, and the procedure had been a complete success. So much so, he spent a couple of weeks at Stax redoing the vocals on a bunch of older tracks uh, to take advantage of his newer, stronger pipes. set of pipes, new band, new plane, an innovative new single just about to drop. People were going to be talking about Otis Redding in 1968. Big changes were on the horizon for the industry, too. In early 1968, Al Bell, a longtime producer and songwriter at Stax, bought in, became a co-owner, and took over the day-to-day operations. Al very consciously adopted the language and attitude of black power in the Stax marketing and messaging. It reflected the times, and it reflected the music being made at Stax. From 68 on, the music starts sounding a lot tougher. The songs are much more topical. After overcoming some initial resistance, Al Bell also reformed hiring policies and compensation practices at Stax and gave the artists more of a stake. There were now two black-owned record companies, Stax and Motown, each with their own style, dynamic ownership, diverse staff, and great products to sell. Motown were about to get the field to themselves. Despite the smash success of Aretha Franklin, Atlantic was moving away from R&B and soul music. In late 67, Atlantic sold out to Warner Brothers. Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler retained day-to-day control at Atlantic, a unique arrangement in those days, but when push came to shove, they answered to the corporate masters at Warner's. Ahmet Erdogan was the founder of Atlantic. Jerry Wexler's senior partner, and we will get to know Ahmet a little bit in a future episode. What's important to today's story, Ahmet was looking elsewhere for talent, and he had been for some time, towards L.A. and London. Jerry Wexler tended to be dismissive of these white boy rockers, as he called them, but Ahmet was the senior partner, so that was that. Wex figured he could live with it. Even with the new direction, Atlantic still had Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett on the roster. And thanks to that deal he'd made early on with Stax, Atlantic would soon press and distribute the new Otis Redding album. Young girls, they do get weary Wearing that same old shaggy dress Yeah, yeah But when she gets weary Try a little tenderness Yeah, yeah 
on the plane down to Macon for his funeral. My mind was filled with try a little tenderness, the way Otis sang it, the way the chart built, the tick-tock metronome beat, Isaac Hayes' soaring organ, the mystery of infinite grace and finite time. That's Wax once again, and his remarks open up the final chapter in today's show. Cleveland, Ohio, Sunday afternoon, December 10th, 1967. The previous week, Otis had been at Stax cutting Dock of the Bay and other tracks. As we mentioned, there was some back and forth about what to do with Dock of the Bay, but by Friday afternoon, that was pretty much sorted out. After a Friday night gig in Nashville and a Saturday afternoon television taping in Cleveland, followed by two shows that night, seven young men boarded the twin-engine Beechcraft H-18 with Otis Redding Enterprises stenciled in script on the top of the fuselage. Otis had called home early that morning. Zelma Redding told her husband he sounded kind of down, depressed. Nah, just tired, that's all, he responded. It was an early morning following a late night. The five musicians on board the Beach Twin were 26-year-old Otis Redding, trumpeter Ben Cauley, age 20, saxophonist Phelan Jones, age 19, keyboardist Ronnie Caldwell, age 19, and drummer Carl Cunningham, also age 19. The band's valet, Matthew Kelly, just 18, was also on board. The pilot was 27-year-old Richard Frazier. Otis was a bit of an aviation enthusiast. He liked to sit up front with the pilot. On occasion, Richard Fraser would let him take the controls for a bit mid-flight. This time, Otis was tired, so he dozed off in the co-pilot's seat, and the guys in the back all took a nap as well. Just shy of three hours after takeoff, the control tower at Trucks Field in Madison, Wisconsin, logged a radio call. Richard Fraser requested approach and landing clearance, and the tower granted the request. This is a quote from Mark Rabowski from the book, Dreams to Remember. The plane then began to descend through the heavy clouds on its landing path, which took it over Lake Monona. To get to the airport, the plane would have to clear the lake and make it four more miles over land. Hearing nothing more from Fraser, the tower kept trying to communicate with him but his radio had died en route, part of a fatal power failure in the plane. On the radar screen, the plane was a blip four miles from the runway. Then the blip disappeared. There were several witnesses to the crash. It was called in immediately, and emergency services responded quickly. They were on the scene in 17 minutes. Ben Cauley, who couldn't swim, was clinging to a seat cushion. He was only minutes away from dying of hypothermia when rescuers pulled him out of the water. He was the only survivor. The lake was dragged the following day, and the bodies of the other six men were recovered, along with most of the aircraft. The portside engine and prop were never found. As for the cause of the crash, the National Transportation Safety Board report tersely states, undetermined. The plane had some minor electrical problems. The battery voltage was a bit low. This was noted in the pre-flight check back in Cleveland. Based on that, and a few other observations, Mark Rabowski speculates the cause was an electrical failure at the worst possible time. It's very plausible, but unproven. The funeral was held on December 18th at the City Auditorium in Macon. Over 4,000 people attended. In a voice choked with grief, Jerry Wexler eulogized Otis Redding. Otis was a natural prince. When you were with him, he communicated love and a tremendous faith in human possibilities. A promise that great and happy events were coming. Out of this character and dedication, he bought his beautiful ranch in Macon to make his home and base his business operations when he could have chosen any other place in the world. He thought it was the obligation of educated or talented blacks to remain in their native south to help open the doors of opportunities for their race. Otis sang, respect when I come home, and Otis... Has come home. 
sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've had nothing to live for, and look like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit. What eluded Otis Redding in life, he accomplished after his death. Dock of the Bay hit number one on the Billboard charts in early 1968. It was the first posthumously released number one song in history. Look like nothing's gonna change. Everything still remains the same. Stax Records almost went under that year. Sales of Otis Redding's back catalog jumped, but Stax saw little benefit from it. Atlantic owned the distribution rights, and Atlantic now belonged to Warner Brothers. Stax survived the blow and found their feet, and went on to have a second act. Uh, More about that, and much more to say about American soul music in later episodes. Come on back. As for me... Right now, I'm going to walk on down to the waterfront, watch the ships roll in, and watch them roll away again. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. See you next time. to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson from Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.